Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Our next guest is a true Renaissance man. He's an artist, a fashion designer, a best-selling author, a TV star, a father, a partner, an interior designer, and he's known for dressing icons from Oprah to Beyonce to Queen Latifah to Anne Hathaway. He's an innovator, an entrepreneur, and I think he actually might be an intuit too. Please welcome Bradley Bayou. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Hey, how are you? <laughs> so That's quite an you. intro, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> who, are you who are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Bradley, Bradley, she's the queen of intros. I don't even try it because I'd be too embarrassed. To she's good, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So my first question for you, Bradley, is tell us how you became an artist and the designer to the stars, creative director of Halston. How did that all happen? I'll do really short, fast, or we're going to take up the whole hour because I have such a strange story. At 12 years old, my parents, my father was a doctor, said to me, they sat me down and because I wanted to be an opera singer. And they said, we don't want you singing anymore. <clears throat> you have to stop because we want you to become a doctor or a lawyer, if you imagine. <clears throat> So I, I mean, I literally fell apart because at that age I had decided what I want to do. And I had a friend who drew a lot and we were best friends. And so I started drawing. At the age of 12, I turned my direction to painting and art. And I ended up at high school, I was in the art class. And then I went to a place called Skowhegan, which is a professional art school. And, and I decided I'm going to be an artist. And I was selling paintings at, you know, 16, 17. And then I went to this place called Skowhegan and my parents came up and they thought I was insane because of my paintings. They you know, accused me of being nuts. And so they offered me, we, we went to, and I had a child at that time with my wife, whose name was Twinkle. And we had a, we had a child. And so they offered me to, to pay for my year of living if I got a master's in business. So my wife was like, yes, we have no money. You, <laughs> you have to do this. So I went back to Dallas. I got an MBA. I went into business. I ended up being the head of a development company that I had interned with. It was a shell company, but I turned it into something. And I had to give up painting. So after many years of, of doing that, I had reached a peak. I had gotten into a plateau of not being happy and struggling with all that and, and being married still, but finding discovery in myself that I was gay. And so my wife and I broke up. I moved to New York so I could pursue painting again. But after a few months in New York, and I be, I was in a crowd of people that include Jean-Michel Bascot and Keith Haring and stuff. I actually fell into that group of people and we all became friends. Andy Warhol. But they all started dying. It was AIDS time when yeah. I came out. 
and New York was a very depressing place. So I left New York and came to LA just for a week, just to try to get away from it and end up falling in love with LA. And I did. So I moved to LA as a new gay man in a totally new city all alone. Wow. Painting again and acting. I started picking up acting because I'd done that as a kid and singing. I, I started, I said, I'm going to do all those things my parents would let me do right. at the age of 30. And so I met my first partner, boyfriend. And after being with him for a few months, he found out he had AIDS. Oh, I'm so sorry. And he was like the first love of my life, you know, with man to man instead of, I love my wife, but it was a different kind of love. When he died, I was at a friend's house and I was, you know, not in a great place, but Cindy Crawford had a show called House of Style back then, yeah. right? On MTV. And I was watching with these people and I was painting at the time and doing that kind of stuff. And she had a segment on vest and how vests were the new age and here's some vests. And I was looking at these vests on television and going in front of these people, I say, oh, those are terrible. I could do much better. And one person almost dared me. You know, he said, oh, come on, man. Everybody says that. I go, no, I can't. I mean, we actually have gotten kind of a mini tiff. And I left and I went home and I got an old vest of mine, literally that day. And I hand painted the old vest with acrylics because that's what I was painting with at the time. A week later, there was a, a Labor Day LA and gay. It was like the first circuit gay party weekend in the country. This is 1988, 80, 89. And I wore the vest to a party. It was a black tie party for all men. So it looked like a bunch of penguins. <laughs> and then you realize why women have to wear gowns because it's not meant to be just men in, at these parties. Somebody stopped me and said, hey, do you, you know, I know a buyer at Fred Siegel, which is a store in L.A. And he goes, if you have other of those vests, I can sell them. So he, I went to the Salvation Army and I bought five more vests for $1.50 each. I made them really big so they fit me in case nobody wanted them. I could still wear them. And he came back two hours later and said, they want to order all your vests, Fred Siegel's. So I said, what? <laughs> Thinking, how do I make vests? I don't even know how to make <laughs> How can I copy these vests? Like, I painted all the vests, but I didn't know how to make a vest. So I, had, I was scheduled to see my kids. I have two children in Dallas. So I went to Dallas and I realized Neiman Marcus was based in Dallas. And I had a bag full of these vests and I went into Neiman Marcus with no appointment. And I, I said, can I see the men's buyer? Who are you? And I said, oh, I, I have vests. I paid vests. And vests were kind of the thing at the time. And the head buyer was leaving for men. And he like stuck his head out and saw me and says, come here and show me the vest. And I showed him the vest. He literally freaked out and grabbed all the vests and ran out of the room. And I thought, oh, he thinks I stole the vest. And that I was freaking out. I asked the system, what's he doing? He goes, I don't know. I've never seen him do that before. But he came back 10 minutes later. I was literally about to leave thinking the cops were going to come and arrest me. He says, we love the vest. We're going to buy them for our top 10 stores and put them in the windows. So in two weeks, I had Fred Siegel's and Neiman Marcus. So I said, well, those two accounts, I should really go see if anybody in New York wants them. And sure enough, Saks and Barney's wanted them too. Amazing. So it, by a month, <laughs> I was in the top stores in the country. And the only problem was, how do you make a vest? 
So there was a guy in my neighborhood called Hans the Tailor at a little shop. I went there and said, I have these. How do you make vests? Can you make them for me? He says, yes, go get me this many yards of this color. and this." Many. I did, brought them back. He made all the vests. I hired I, I had a housekeeper. She had a son who was in art school. Him and his friends, I paid to come sit with me all night long to paint these vests and send them out, which we did. Wow. And I said, I will never do that again. This is a nightmare. Yeah. Two weeks later, Neiman Marcus calls me and says, oh, my God, the vests are flying out the window. Can we come see your spring collection? Oh. <laughs> and that is how I started in the business. Wow. <laughs> and from that, it went on and on to becoming the head designer for Halstead. And the stories just go on and on and on and on. It just got crazier and crazier, and I was sucked up to the New York scene of fashion world and becoming one of the top young designers in fashion in the United States, all because of that vest that I accidentally painted. That's, That's unbelievable, crazy. Bradley. What That's a story. <laughs> you know, it leads me to my, my next question, which is, what did a white male know about dressing such a diverse group of women? Well, that's interesting because I did dress. I was known as, well, Latifah called me honorary black man because she swore I was black. She said, I know you're half black. Don't lie. I know. She goes, you just get us. And the first black girl I dressed was Halle Berry for the opening of Dorothy Dandridge when she did that movie. Yes. Purely, I don't even know how I got that gig, but I had a little window at a store on, I, I moved to LA. I can't go through my whole life because I told you it's crazy. Yeah. But I did it and then Oprah liked the dress or whatever stuff. She asked me to do something. Then Serena Williams, then Coretta Scott King, Oprah had me do for her. And it became just this list of the most amazing black women in the world. Yeah. And this is a terrible story. But when I was at Halston doing a lot of these, the head of Halston thought Halston should be an Upper East Side white skinny chick place. And he said, I don't want you dressing any more black women, especially heavy ones, because I was doing Latifah that time, too. Mm -hmm. So he wouldn't he wouldn't give me the money as a designer of the head of Halston to do Latifah's dress for the Academy Awards. Wow. Which I did. So I paid for it because I said, you are not turning a la Queen Latifah down. That's unbelievable. And I did all her clothes for a couple of years, everything she wore, as well as doing a lot of clothes for Oprah at that time, including her 50th birthday party, as well as the Emmys. Mm -hmm. And he hated it because he thought the image was all wrong for Halston. And literally, you know, this was, because I dress Beyonce too. This is where fashion is going. And these women of all sizes are becoming the new fashion norm. And by the way, the only two plus size or larger size women in the history of People Magazine made the top 10 best dress list. I did it two years in a row, one with Latifah, one with Oprah the first time anybody that wasn't a stick figure was in that list. Wow. And, and what's interesting to me is that I bet he took their money any other time. He would have taken yeah. the money in a second. Yeah, that's, that's I what mean, you It wasn't about the money. It was about he, his perceived notion of what old Halston from the 70s was, yeah, was skinny women in New York City and Liza Minnelli. And my image was the new image was no, man. It's all inclusive and black is where it's at as far as the hippest, coolest, most incredible women in the world. And I got to dress all of them. Wow, I mean, it became a struggle. You know, they were fighting Roberta Flack, Aretha Franklin. They were all trying to get me to do clothes for them. 
And it, it just got to a point where he was just like totally incensed and wouldn't spend any money on advertising. So I, I quit. I left. Good and for you. Took my company and opened up a, you know, my own little store in L.A. and, and went from there. Well, that, that explains how you got such a diverse group of women dressed. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Makes sense. I had to fight for them. Yeah, well, and also the thing about the African-American community is, you know, we let people in. It's part of our problem. You know, we let people in and then they pillage, deal, rob us raw and then go on their way and sell the same thing back to us. So it makes sense that you you did one right and then the arms open and we are welcoming in that way. So well, they're, they're the most incredible experiences for me, you know. That's yeah. awesome. We made, we made friends with some of them. I mean, not best friends, but, you know, yeah. friends. And, uh, and they, they, you know, the women I dress support me. You know, That's they think amazing. I That's did it amazing. right. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit, kind of like you started the tone there, but I just want to go more into the gay community. Right. And I want to I want to ask you, what are your thoughts about racism that exists in the gay community? You saw it in the designer world. I'm wondering how you see it in the gay community. Clearly, you have an eye for it. So talk to me about it. That's a very good question. I fortunately knew some black designers uh, at that period in New York. And New York fashion world was more open to the idea of black designers, but you couldn't, it, it, I taught at FIT one year, mm -hmm. graduate level, and there was not one black. I would say there are people of color because there were some Asians and there was, but there was and Latinos, but there were no blacks. And I thought it was weird. You know, I thought maybe, you know, they don't, you know, they're not being reached out to. Maybe that's not what people were interested in in that community. But it was odd. It was strange. It definitely something felt wrong about it. You know, there was not a balance. It was 90% white girls and, and some guys. And the balance was Asian. And really, that was it. So it had a feeling of elitism and it, it was strange. The, the New York, in New York, I don't know, the gay community that I was involved with was incredibly open to the black community. In fact, many of my friends have, have become partners with or married blacks and had children and everything. So I don't see a real negative in that, in my world. Yeah. As far as the over, you know, as far as everything else, of course I see it. I mean, there's a real discrepancy, but in this, this is the renaissance for the Afro-American community right now. It is a renaissance. So some of the top designers are, you know, Virgil Abloh and, you know, these different people who become household names mm -hmm. and uh, artists, you know, starting with Basquiat. And now almost every artist I follow is black, even writers and the poems and poets and that it's really incredible. And you know what? It's about time. The amount of talent in that community is actually astounding and so innovative. It comes from a different point of view that seems more universal and more appealing to everybody, not just a small group like my experience, just that small Upper East Side woman. Right. And I think that the thing that's, you know, interesting, I do believe there's more visibility for black designers and artists. It's frustrating that there's still such a handle on who determines what gets the most exposure. Like, that's the frustrating piece because it like is. you said, it's warranted. 
we've been a part on the uh, of the front line of what's happening and music and clothes, everything from the beginning and just can't get a front seat without all of the rigmarole that goes along with it. So that that's the part that's- Well, I think that's right, but I really think it's changing. I mean, even just talking about the Oscars or the Academy Awards, they're trying to be all-inclusive. They're trying. I can't say they've achieved it, but in almost every area, I can see an attempt. And actually it's a real negative if you do not include. Uh, yeah, I right. think that is happening and it will, it's swinging the other way where I think actually, especially the art world, because I collect art, that the art community is just exploding with talent in the black community. Mm-hmm. And even for, I don't know if you know, Alison Sars, do you know her? She's a great African-American sculptor who's in this town. She went for years and years and all of a sudden she's being recognized one of the top sculptors in the world. Great. Uh, but not that it, it should have happened 20 years ago. She's an older lady. It's just happening now because all of a sudden like, oh, it's in my backyard. <laughs> oh, I didn't notice her before, you know, because she just couldn't be a great artist. And, you know, I find that really hypocritical, but it is happening. So, yes, you're right. There's still an imbalance in everything that's creative. But the balance is turning around. And even people like Alvin Ailey and people like that who advanced so long ago, that world of dance is now, I mean, considered, he's considered a god among dance. And I think other people are finally recognized what they, you know, who they really are about contributing to all the arts. But now it's finally like going, I feel in fashion, it's really become an almost not an equal, but definitely some huge names have come out that are really affecting all design and on an impactful way that it really, people are running going, oh my God, oh my God, I should look at black people now. Yeah. And it's kind of like, oh, didn't you see them before? No. <laughs> you know they what? were really great, I'm telling you. Yeah. Bosca yeah. and I were really close friends. And it, it, it was so strange for me because I only knew all the white artists. I didn't know any of the black artists. And yet we clicked immediately. And I just saw him as what he was. He was just a great artist. And we were about the same age at the time. So, and I was in real estate development. So, you know, he thought I was really cool because he knew, and I was from Texas. So he came and stayed with me. And he thought that was really weird because that was weird. I thought he was really weird because his hair was strange. And he, wore, he used to dress me up to take me out to clubs. He said, oh, no, 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 you look way too white. He said, get out of that crap. And he would put hats on me. And I was wearing, you know, Armani and all this stuff. So all of a sudden I was going, hey, I kind of like this. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally for me, get it. I was doing drag. I was like in drag doing it. Because for a sister, it was like, this, this is not who I am, or is it? Yeah, but Bradley, that's the thing about, you know, I think that's where you got your worldview clearly because of what you did. You know, you spent time with people, and that's what's required to truly change the narrative. You're you have right. to understand, and if you don't understand, at least experience. I was on Melissa Rivers' podcast, and, and we were talking about who Kamala Harris was going to wear in terms of designer. And her former college roommate had pretty much hoped that she was going to wear a black designer. And so I was disappointed that she wore a raffler in because it would have been a great time. It was wrong, in my opinion. But you know who didn't was Michelle Obama. Sure didn't. And sure boy, didn't. did she, I'm not going to say the word. Oh, she stole her. that show. When she walked oh, in, no. I went, who did that outfit? And the way she, that's about clothing. I'm telling you about confidence. 
if you feel good, you look good. And you could tell she was just totally, you know, taking that moment go, I look incredible. And you know what? <laughs> she blew me out of the water. I was <laughs> made. And that's a great new black designer. Just oh, like that. You know, amazing. Go ahead, Suze, take it away. Okay, so Bradley, on this line of thinking, um, how do you think your whiteness has protected you in the business? You know, that's an interesting question. I'm a really tall person, mm-hmm. and I think I think there are advantages to the way you look. I think doors opened because of the way I looked and who I had been, and I think that I know a lot of doors are shut to everybody else, but if you are white, you definitely have a step up in getting advantages. I, I know that for a fact, and because it's happened to me, where you actually are in certain situations where you actually think that maybe you're at a disadvantage because you're so advantaged, because you have to really be really good because you get a break that other people may not get. Mm. Uh, and that could actually go against the way you feel about yourself on the inside. Like I, when I first started designing, I kept saying, am, am I fooling everybody? Am I faking everybody out? Why am I in this position of being all the windows of sacks and covers of magazines? When I didn't go to school, I didn't do any of that stuff. Is it me or is it the way I appear? Or why did I get this break? I guarantee if I was black, I would not have gotten it. Right. And I so, know that. Yeah, so we're talking about privilege. Yeah, it was definitely white privilege. And I came from a Texas white privilege family. My father was a doctor and da-da-da-da. And I was married to Twinkle and we were big socialites. So I get it, right? I've seen it. Mm-hmm. There were no black people in that community. And if there were, it was like, what are they doing here? I mean, literally, I grew up in that world in Texas. And I could be really straight. My father was a racist, you know. And but I had friends in high school that were black and, you know, Latino and everything else. And I'll tell you a horrible story. My daughter had her best friend was this big black football player who went on to become professional. And my father-in-law gave her a little dinner for graduation in high school. And so she had like 20 of her little friends and they were eating and stuff like that. So the father and Twinkle and I were sitting in another room Mm -hmm. and she said, oh, I want you to meet my friend, my best friend. And she brings this big black guy. My father-in-law turned absolutely red and almost started shaking. He was like, Like, what is that black person doing in my country club? You could hear him thinking, right? And even Twinkle was like, get over it, stop it. You know, not only did that guy become a professional football player, but he was like the head of his class. But that was the environment I was raised in, where if you saw that, they should be carrying an apron and a tray, and they should not be wearing a suit and sitting at the same table with his granddaughter. And it was incredibly upsetting to her. I mean, she was totally upset because she had been basically slapped down because she had a black friend in in the white country club. It was unbelievable. But that's the world I came from. So, yeah, I grew up with these things. That world world exists today. Oh, honey, I know. Yes. I mean, my family all still lives there. Why do you think I live in L.A.? <laughs> right. It's not just the gay thing. It's everything. Right. I mean, everybody's looked down upon if you're not white man. Right. <clears throat> and it's even more white women are, are declassed 
in that world. I mean, it's really a white man's world, and it's really negative, and you feel it at a very young age, especially with the names you hear people called. It's everything. And it's a horrifying way to grow up, especially when you go off into the world and go, wait a second, these my friends are really cool, and what? <laughs> Your mind plays tricks with you because you go, that can't be right, and you struggle with it. Because well, if you're raised that way, you struggle with the concept that, you know, only white men are, are on top. Right, right. Totally. The culmination of all of your experience, you wrote this book, which is a science called The Science of Sexy, best-selling book. And I know you're working on a new one. Can you tell us about The Science of Sexy and what you're doing now? Well, you know, it's really funny because Signs of Sexy purely came about, People Magazine did a story on me called The Man for All Sizes because I was designing clothes from everybody from Eva Longoria to Queen Latifah and every size in between, short, small, skinny, you know, whatever. It didn't matter. I was dressing him, but I was kind of labeled that. And it gave me this idea that how do I know how to dress everybody? There must be something to it. And it's really about balancing a body. So I wrote this book, Science of Sexy, that is really a science about no matter what size or shape you are, there is a room for you that tells you how you, for your particular height, weight, and body shape, could go to that will tell you what to wear, what not to wear, who your body double is as far as famous people. So you kind of get an image of who you really are. And it tells you all the do's and don'ts and what to, what to accentuate, what kind of jewelry you should wear for your height or whatever, patterns, all that kind of stuff. Because it is a science that nobody, it's, that book has become the manual for all stylists in the world, actually, because it's in six languages. Because nobody has a guide to do that. So they get a client and they go, well, I don't know what to do with this person. And they use my book as a base. So... I decided the book needed to be expanded upon because, and Susie, you have something to do with this, because of, you know, Zoom and FaceTime and da 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 and how we're all trapped by COVID, nobody even sees the body. I mean, not that it's not important, but nobody sees it. It's all about the face. Right. Nobody knows how to make their face up. I don't know about you, but my wife never taught my kids how to do makeup or hair. So when they were growing up, she would be all made up, but they didn't understand how to do it. So, you know, dad came in, <laughs> hey, dad, and said, come on, Hans, <laughs> let's go shopping. And then you know, I'd go to these shopping places with the, the, the sales agent would go, what do you know about what she should wear? And my daughter would say, don't fuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he is not to be messed with. Right. Well, anyway, so there's nobody to tell you. So if you have a certain shape face, right? and you want to know, the, 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 the basic part of the book is hourglass is the most uh, balanced shape for figure, and oval face is the perfect face, or not perfect, the most you know, wanted kind of face or balanced face of all. So what you do if you have other shape, round face, square face, you know, pear shape, whatever, it teaches you how to contour through makeup to achieve an oval face, oh, so or the balance. And also the book goes into hair. What length hair you should have, what color should it be for your skin tone. Uh, it's all those things that make your face look its best because in this world, 
we have, you know, Zooms and fit what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. I don't, if I do a book tour, I don't have to go anywhere anymore. And that <laughs> makes me really happy. You know well, that, right? Well, I, I, don't, I can sit here and do all day long and do, have, you know, have a, I'm sitting in shorts, by the way, and having a cup of coffee and, and, and whatever I want. And it's fabulous. But luckily, I'm male in that sense, only that sense. And for for that, you know, I and plus I'm a designer. I know this haircut looks best on me because I have no hair. <laughs> and a little beard here and there kind of balances it out. And that's all I have to do. But women have a much harder time. And there and I think expectations for women are horrible. Oh. It's terrible. I don't know when we'll get past this. But in the meantime, to achieve this balance in your body, getting at face and getting the confidence you need to be sexy, because that's all it's about. If you're confident in the way you look in your skin, then you've got it anyway. You don't need my book. But if in the Instagram fake world, you uh, know, in the world of generally people expect. So, right. And you want that job or you want that interview or that date or whatever. You still have to play along for a while. Or you already have the confidence, and that's the sexiest thing anyway, so who cares? And the book also tells you body language, and it also goes into pheromones and smell and how the attraction of certain things, voice for for women. You know, women perceive, oh, I have to be really high-talking, and I got to be really good. And that is really irritating, and that's not true. So lower the voice, it's sexier. And all these little things that make this sense of attraction that you want job interviews, uh, dates, uh, talking to uh, your old classmates that you want to impress, <laughs> whatever it is, it's kind of like this manual, all comprehensive that includes everything for all women, no matter who they are, to feel more confident. It's just a little guide to help in that area. It's awesome. not a book about I can fix you psychologically or take this pill and you're going to be really great. It's not about that. It's about physically and to exude confidence, whatever makes you feel good. If you look in the mirror every day and all you see is your nose because you think you have a honker, <laughs> right? And you're not Barbara Streisand, you're not really comfortable with it, right? Because she obviously is. Then you say to yourself, you know, I say to them, either contour your nose or I actually believe it's just something that bothers you that much, get a nose job. Because you shouldn't look at yourself in the mirror and just be tearing yourself down every time you get up in the morning. It's not right. So if you can fix it, then fix it somehow. Don't obsess over it because it's not all that, but fix it so it doesn't become the one focus. Now these people in Hollywood take it so far, they look at themselves and hate everything. So, oh, come on, right? Well, as two therapists, we, we know, we, we understand that. You know. Yes, that. yes. And, and the addiction to that is not healthy at all. But I really believe that through makeup or whatever, men don't have that advantage yet. They are getting it because more men are wearing makeup, which I think is cool. But they don't have it yet. Okay. But, Okay. Well, I'm gonna thank you. I'm gonna I'm gonna change direction, and this is one of our favorite parts of the show. This will be hard for you. I'm gonna give you one word, and you're gonna answer with one word. Oh. Okay. Yes. Okay. Classism. <sighs> Classism. Oh, um, elitism. Men. 
<laughs> Man. I, funny, the first thing that came to my mind is weak. Wow. I don't know why, but that just popped in my head. Honest. And self. Self? Uh, love. Oh, that's beautiful. Nice. Bradley, one more question for you before we thank you profusely for coming on the show and sharing all of your incredible knowledge with us. What does changing the narrative mean to you? By the way, I love that title. I think it's brilliant because isn't that what it's about? What does it mean to me? It means that people have to stop living in their own world and open up to the outside world and giving it a chance, which means listen and embrace and try to erase all the negative thoughts you have about yourself and other people. Yeah, it's unlearning. We keep talking about unlearning. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, Unlearn. Yeah, unlearn. You're amazing. Thank you. Are too. I just thoroughly enjoyed our time with you. I feel badly it was so short, but we covered a lot. Uh, You're such an interesting guy. I can't wait to read your book about your life story. Yeah, I'm writing that too. (laughs) And thank you, thank you guys so much. Anytime. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, sweeties. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. 